I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. Today's episode is kindly brought to you by XL Moto, the one-stop motorcycle shop for all your motorcycle needs, whether it's motorcycle jeans, boots, gear, bike lifts, tools, accessories and anything in between, XL Moto is your place to go. Okay, let's begin this week's episode because I've got Oh, I've got a lot to get through. I want to start off. I'm going to now try and start off with with people's comments and input from the past week. And I'll start off actually with a bit of Ducati related stuff. And this is really just to give a bit of balance to the argument because I guess you may think or some people may think that I've given Ducati a bit of a bashing after it scored really badly on the the survey I did when people said when I asked people is Ducati reliable and would you buy another Ducati did very badly but to give some balance a few people not many I'll be honest with you but a few people have said that their Ducatis have done big mileage so let me give you some insight from Ducati riders with with a positive spin and I should say from the outset Although there are Ducati riders, of course, who are happy with their Ducatis and there are Ducati riders who will say that they're reliable, most Ducati owners do seem to be of the opinion that whether they like their Ducati or not, maintenance of those Ducatis is expensive compared to other brands. So listen to this insight. Uh, my brother's Ducati S2R 800 Monster, 13 years old, never failed, got 60,000 kilometers on the clock. My Ducati ST2, 21 years old, 155,000 kilometers on the clock. Proper maintenance is key to longevity. Mm, fair enough, that's massive. And someone else said, I had an old Ducati Monster, 45,000 miles on the clock. It sucks down gas, has stupid gearing, and it belches heat, and the maintenance is horrifying, and it makes too much noise, and it looks ridiculous, and it's awesome. I plan to have another in the future. Now my companion is a Thruxton. I love that. That's brilliant. 
another. I love all things Ducati. I have the Scrambler Icon Dark, a Monster 821, a 996 and a 1299 Panigale. Wouldn't sell any of them. They have all been 100% reliable, but service costs are high and they do need to be well looked after. Like most Ducati owners, I only ride them when it's nice, never in the rain. I use my Triumph Street Twin most of the time um, when the weather's dodgy. That's really interesting, and that's a really good insight. Ducatis, is it fair fair to me to is it fair for me to say they are? They really are the Ferraris of the biking world. You got to look after them. You know, you wouldn't take a Ferrari out on a December on salty roads. They are bikes for maybe I'm generalising, but they really are bikes for the nicer weather. They're a bit more fragile than the likes of the Japanese bikes, for example. So that's really interesting feedback. And let me do one more. Um, I've had three Ducati Monsters in the past and all been very reliable. The only criticism I'd have is the cam belt service is very expensive. Oh, I have to do one more. This one's good. It's all fun and games with Ducati until the first maintenance bill comes in. Monsters are hella fun, but man, you got to pay to play. As for power, it's a bike that you want to rev out and max out uh, every ride to find the power. It's definitely for that sporting stage of ridership or a little throttle happy thank you so much for all of that that was quite eye-opening actually into what ducati ownership's like it's kind of what i thought it would be like but yeah eye-opening eye-opening okay i move on because i've had a few interesting comments that i want to get to specifically about about my experience with with the Harley Davidson Pan America and I guess adventure bikes in general because I want to give you a bit of insight into this because a lot of people were saying to me Freddie look you, you got to test out the BMW GS you really do to get a good idea of what the ultimate adventure bike is like and how the ultimate adventure bike should feel and I have to say I can't remember if I said it in last week's podcast I've never ever ever come across a group of riders who universally praise their motorcycle of choice more so than BMW owners and let me give you a bit of an insight here Freddie I've got a BMW R1200 GSA which oh and this is interesting I've got a BMW 1200 GSA which has the optional nav 6 which is the sat nav of the time and it was a 700 pound option and I bought it and it's now completely redundant like you say you're better off with your phone that that basically i when I was testing the Pan America, it comes with this sat-nav, yada, yada, yada. I've never rated sat-navs on cars or motorbikes because they age horrifically badly, just dreadfully. You know, my parents have one on their BMW, looks awful now. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's never going to be as good as your phone with... Just use Google Maps or Waze. They spend millions of pounds investing in these sat-navs. They're never as good. They're always much harder to use. And I'm glad a few people agreed with me. Moving on. Um, Freddie, I hear you are an adventure versus modern retro thing. I haven't ridden a Harley, but I do have a BMW R1250 GS Adventure. Much like the Harley, it's nearly perfect in every way. I strongly recommend for you to try one. But perfection, this is interesting. Listen to this from an owner of the Ultimate Adventure Bike. But 
Perfection is not all that it's cracked up to be. Sometimes you need something else in your garage, something less perfect, which requires a little bit more attention to detail on the ride. For me, that is the BMW R9T. Therefore, I have the best of both worlds with the R9T and the GS. If I were you, I'd opt for an adventure bike and keep the Bonneville if you can. That's a great insight. Can a bike like the BMW GS, like adventure bikes, can they be too perfect? They're perfect on paper, they're perfect when you ride them, but do they lack a bit of character? I don't know, I don't wanna put words into people's mouths, um, but sometimes you just want that almost a bit rough around the edges, that little bit extra character. Although having said that, after riding, after riding an adventure bike, I get it, I get it 100%, 100%. here we go. Someone else absolutely agree with your statement about integrated sat-navs, but unfortunately mobile phones and their cameras can become quite sensitive to vibrations, even with a vibration dampener. Now, for me personally, I haven't had an issue in 20,000 miles riding with my phone on a phone mount, but that is a very fair comment. Mobile phone cameras, maybe they are sensitive, and if they are sensitive, of course, you've got your your £1,000 mobile phone mounted there. I do it every day I ride because I find it easy. I haven't had a problem, but it's a very fair point. Interestingly, that comment had a a fairly polarizing reaction to it. Some people say, no, come on, phones aren't affected by it. And some people say, yes, you know, phones are more sensitive now. I guess you just got to weigh up the pros and cons, the ease of having your phone there and the potential that maybe you've got, you know, a brand of camera, a brand of phone that doesn't have the toughest, doesn't have the toughest camera. That's interesting. Okay, I'm going to move on now because I was, in fact, actually, let me move on to something that's not sponsored in any way. I just found it interesting. There's a company called Moto Grime. Someone shared this with me on Instagram this week. M-O-T-O Grime, G-R-I-M-E. It's called a Moto Grime Guard. And it's a very simple guard that you just put behind your rear sprocket and you can spray your chain if you don't have a lift. And it protects the the brakes and the rest of the bike from getting all of that overspray on your bike. And I thought that looks so simple, but it makes absolute sense. So I will actually be looking to get that. That is a Moto Grime guard to help with, with spraying lube on your chain. Okay, right. Let's get on to, what am I gonna do next? No, I've gotta do this next. I did a Yamaha survey. I have to do this next, it's too interesting. So I'm just going to flip two things around in order. Right, Yamaha survey time. You will remember that I did, and this is just some stuff that I found so interesting. I've done two surveys in about the past, maybe maybe month or so. The first, And the exact same questions for both. My aim with this survey is to find out what motorcycle brands are reliable and what do you, the riders, really think of your motorbikes. So the first, Ducati. Would you describe your Ducati as reliable? 53% of owners said yes. Second question, would you buy another Ducati? 52% of owners said yes. That's, that is very poor marks, very poor. I then asked the same, the exact same to Triumph owners. 
Would you describe your Triumph as reliable? 89% said yes. Next question, would you buy another Triumph? 87% said yes. Yamaha. Now, I've done the same for Yamaha. I've done British brand. I've done an Italian brand. Time for the Japanese. And there were very nearly 1,000 replies to these. Would you describe... Would you describe your Yamaha as reliable? Yes. Doing a drum roll here. 87%. Exactly as I expected, Yamaha's done very well. 87% of Yamaha owners would describe their Yamaha as reliable. Next question. Would you buy another Yamaha? 84% of owners said yes. That is hugely impressive. And I'd expect nothing less from well i'd expect nothing less from a japanese brand to be completely honest and let me just read out a few a few thoughts from yamaha owners here we go yamaha really do make quality bikes never had any problems with any of the bikes next comment very durable machines i ride a 99 virago it's very simple to maintain next fantastic bikes great value for money uh, next, I bought a 2005 FZ6, great engine, lovely sound, reliable. Next, good value for money and reliable. Again, someone else. I own the SCR950 and it's probably the greatest bike I've ever had. Next, my MT is a nice bike, but doesn't excite me that much. I'm saving some pounds for a Triumph Scrambler. That was probably, that was probably the only negative I found that was uh, some kind of pattern there where everyone, almost everyone said they're brilliant bikes. But a few people did say maybe they la slightly do lack that excitement or that special feeling. A few more cheap, durable, good quality and easily available spare parts. Amazingly reliable and understated. Good build quality up there with Honda. I could go on and on and on. Uh, Japanese are the most reliable, however not the best design. Bulletproof, but not much character. These, you know, if you're looking, if you're looking for absolute reliability, You've, you're going to be hard pressed to find something better than really any Japanese mark across the board. And it's not just the reliability that people were saying, it's the cost of maintenance. These parts are readily available and they're incredibly, incredibly good value. So I think I have to do next, maybe next week, I have to do German or American. We need to get Germans and the Americans in there next to see how they fare. I'd be very curious about that because they're two brands that of course are super premium. And I don't know, you never know with these premium brands. For example, you look at, you look at Audis, Mercedes, BMWs as cars, you know, they're, they're premium cars. None of them, none of them ever, ever do well in the reliability ratings ever they're always poor just like for example land rover the, the british brands range rover land rover all all of the land rover marks whether it's the discovery the the range rover the range rover sport they are always always at the bottom of every single reliability survey every year here in the uk and of course it'll be the same around the world they are not reliable cars the more premium you get usually the more unreliable you get because there's more stuff on them so i'm really curious to see how those two brands fare right this is something that i'm hearing more and more of now someone sent me a message actually specifically about the podcast hi freddie 
Maybe an interesting topic for the channel or podcast, the transition to electric motorcycles. Should you still spend £15,000 or more today on a petrol motorbike not knowing how long you're still able to ride it for and without too much hassle, for example decreasing fuel quality, environmental zones, taxes, etc, etc, and subsequent strong depreciation of your purchase, do you think the transition will, the transition will still take many years or is the tipping point closer than we think with Ducati going to the Moto E Sports and Kawasaki announcing a focus on electric as of 2025? Additional questions. What could be the motorcycle industry plan and roadmap, and roadmap in the next years? And do other fellow bikers appreciate or anticipate the inevitable transition already when buying a new bike? I'll make sure that I do a survey on bikers' thoughts on this, hopefully in the next week's episode, if I remember. I've just been, I, I ended up doing the Yamaha survey, and I completely forgot about this one, but I'll do a survey. But I wanted to talk about this today because it's something that I think about as well, whether it's a car or a motorbike. Is it, should you go out there and spend big chunks of money now on cars and motorbikes internal combustion cars and motorbikes and and uh, it i just i don't know it's something i've been i've kind of been considering for a while it is it worth it i'm torn with this okay i've done a bit of research into this one so um actually one other thing i wanted to say that was just on the tip of my tongue is it worth buying it but also are we almost at a stage now where it almost doesn't matter? Just go out there and buy a 1980s bike or buy a, a 2010 onwards bike because at the end of the day, they're all going to be, you know, on this blacklist possibly within the next 10 years or so. Is it, may you as well just go out and buy anything? I mean, I know in the UK, I think it's from 1980 or previously. If you buy a car or motorbike, I think it's from 1980 or earlier. They're tax exempt and they're congestion charge exempt and they are the the low pollution neighborhoods exempt. So, you know, I know some people who have, for example, classic BMW motorbikes pre-1980 and they can ride around the streets of London with no issue at all and they don't pay any tax because it's classed as a classic vehicle. Whereas, for example, my old 2002 Suzuki Bandit, that sits firmly in the sector where you have to pay £12.50 a day to commute into London because it's not classed as a, a classic vehicle. So you've got this kind of strange transition now where, you know, should we be looking at these more classic motorbikes? Because you don't pay any road tax on them. Immediately you're saving about 130 a year in the UK because you're not paying any road tax. And you can freely commute into London without having to pay any congestion charge and ultra low emissions charge fees and etc etc so i'm starting to think maybe we should start looking at the 1980s and earlier bikes because there are a few really nice viable motorbikes that fit fit into this category but let me read a bit of what i found uh, i'm going to be quoting a bit here because i find it interesting so from tide the imi.org website quoting here for now riders will be able to continue being able to purchase fossil-fueled motorcycles beyond 2030. 
MAG has confirmed that uh, should this change, the Department for Transport will consult them and any members. So at the time of this article being written, I think December 2020, um, they basically said that uh, the motorcycle, new motorcycles, internal combustion motorcycle ban will be from uh, won't be taking into effect from 2030 because basically to give you an overview in the UK from 2030 all petrol and diesel cars will be banned the sale of all petrol and diesel cars from 2030 will be banned however for motorcycles that's not the case motorcycles have gotten away with it with it as of December 2020 so they're saying because motorcycles account for such a small amount of pollution in the UK, under 1% of transport in the UK, and because because basically if more people went over to motorbikes, there would be much less congestion and also less pollution that uh, they want to give them an easier ride. However, as I was doing some research, I've seen that an article from Tide.com, which came out just a couple of months ago, and that said, that's updated it even even more recently, and that said that from 2035, in fact, this is from the Goodwood website, they are now saying that new legislation has come in, the UK will ban petrol motorcycles by 2035. See, this is how quickly it's changing. In the space of a few months, bikers thought, ah, we're off the hook, brilliant, let's keep buying petrol motorbikes. But now the UK government has actually come in and this is how quickly it's changing now from 2035 and listen to this or earlier if a faster transition appears feasible for new for the sale of new non-zero emission powered two or three wheelers they they will not be allowed to be selling these petrol bikes after 2035 so where does that leave us well Cover.com have said that don't you don't need to initially be worried because the the 2030 ban on all petrol and vehicle and diesel vehicles, not just motorbikes, but the 2030 ban on the sale of these vehicles um, will be uh, will not make any big difference initially if you actually already own one. So the average diesel or petrol car should last at least 10 years. So if you bought one today, you'd probably still get your money's worth. But if you're looking to change your vehicle every few years, it is worth noting that the upcoming ban could cause demand for petrol and vehicle and diesel vehicles to go down. So you need to start considering that if you like changing your vehicle every so often. So while you can still go out and buy your petrol motorbike, this article from cover says that maintenance may start going up. It's the exact same principle when uh, a car or motorbike model goes out of service. You know, these manufacturers will stop manufacturing the parts. And as we start transitioning over to electric, these parts will start getting harder to come by. It just always happens with older and older and older models. So where does that leave us? Should we be looking should we be looking to buy you know these expensive motorbikes and is there a better way to buy them should we start looking more at leasing motorbikes i've always been a fan of buying my vehicles but you know you look at you look at kawasaki by 2025 they're going to have at least this is from motorbeam.com kawasaki going to have at least 
10 battery electric vehicles and hybrids for motorbikes, for motorbikes specifically, within four years. So Kawasaki planned to go electric with all major models. This is mind-blowing. All major models for motorbikes of Kawasaki for developed countries that's interesting because it's not really fair in the developing countries they don't have the money for the infrastructure so for developed countries by 2035 that is 14 years away and they want to introduce 16 new models on uh have 16 new models available and the transition for kawasaki from petrol to petrol and plug-in hybrid etc etc to full electric by 2035 and 14 years. I think, realistically, we've got, I really do think, especially for motorbikes, maybe even more so than cars, I think you've got a good a good 15 to 20 years left. I really don't think there's any initial worry. I think 15 years or so, just from everything I've been seeing online, certainly after the ban in 2035, the ban on you know new sales, of petrol bikes you're still going to be allowed to use them so i would say even after the ban for cars 2030 for bikes 2035 you're still going to have a 10-year transition even after that maybe to 2045 and just driving around tenerife driving through europe i now keep a close eye on what the charging infrastructure is like and bearing in mind this is the eu i'm talking from which is and should be, in theory, one of the front runners for this electric revolution, I would have had no hope at all of making it down from London to Tenerife, you know, through all through France, all through Spain. I'd have had no hope of getting here easily anyway with the electric charging network. Maybe these electric chargers are tucked away somewhere, but every single petrol station and service station I went to, there, there were either none or one or two that were broken or full electric chargers i must have seen about six electric chargers i mean not just six electric charging stations six individual electric chargers on my entire journey down 1200 miles through europe it would have been the most stressful horrible nightmare you can imagine and it made me think we are so, so far away from actually really this, you know, electrification being a viable mode of transport for the masses. It's brilliant, for example, if you live in London, you can charge at home, you live in a city, there are, uh, the charging network is nowhere near good enough. You need to basically be able to charge at home. I've said in a previous episode, and I'll say it again now, if you need to rely on the electric charging network, you've got no hope it's hopeless we're a long long way away i really do think 15 years i said you know it may even be 25 years away and especially for motorbikes i don't think it's anything to even consider i'm all for electric this isn't electric bashing but i think we're we're a very very long way from this being viable and can you imagine on a motorbike you know most bikes have a 100 mile range impossible forget about any type of touring if you've got an electric motorbike at the moment forget it it's not possible the only the only thing electric bikes can do at the moment is commute to work you can't even go on a nice joyride on a sunday because you risk you know all of your friends carrying on a lovely ride and you having to turn back halfway because you need to get home we're we're a very very long way away and electric bikes at the moment they are only for commuting 
absolutely nothing else and it i wouldn't even spend five seconds considering an electric bike for anything other than the daily commute right oh this is interesting this is interesting i quote i think it's an american biker this here we go my friend got his pan america back on saturday he had to have the pipe changed saturday night saturday night the bike broke down again same engine warning light that's crap exclamation he's had three other harley davidsons that are much better this is the problem with pretty much any new model whether it's a car or bike whether it's harley i was about to say or honda i don't know if i don't know if the japanese models have these problems but it's often the case with new brand new models especially in all one a new all new one like the pan america there are going to be some teething problems and yeah i have heard a few people saying that they've they've had teething problems with their bikes they've had to send it back to get repaired to get checked yeah yeah so you you need to be prepared i think when you buy any new vehicle there are often recalls and stuff like that but especially when it's an all new model i've been hearing that quite a bit um i've got two more things to do and I really want to share an interesting old bike that I've never considered before. Uh, but before I do that, mcn.com, motorcyclenews.com, they've got an interesting article, which is the 47 horsepower wonders, which is basically a good selection of good value 47 horsepower motorbikes. And the reason it's 47 horsepower, that's because you don't need the big full motorcycle license. I think it means you can buy them at the age of 18 and not maybe 25 in the UK to get your full big license where you can ride any bike. So basically this is good for people who, uh, who don't have the biggest bike license. And you've got here the Honda CB500F, which is a 500cc, 5,800 pounds for that Honda CB500F. You've then got the Husqvarna Svartpilen, which is a 373cc, and that is £5,049. You've then got the BMW GS3, uh, G310R at £5,070. So these bikes, near enough, 5,000, 5,800. Um, they all seem to get good reviews. They all get very good MPG. They're all very good value. And the one that uh, four stars for the Honda four stars for the BMW and three stars for the Husqvarna. So the BMW and the Honda score well. I'm not 100% sure though. I was reading this and I'm not 100% sure why they didn't include, maybe they only wanted to test three bikes. For me, 47 horsepower wonder, that's the Royal Enfield Interceptor every single day of the week. Like these bikes, I'm sure they're all good and uh, every biker wants a different bike so I'm only speaking for myself for me personally the reason why Royal Enfield Interceptor and Royal Enfield in general are so incredible and I, I'm always banging on about how much I love them this is the reason because this is what bikers it was their only choice you know you get some kind of commuter looking bikes for um for the the lower powered bikes and you know that they do look cool they do look cool but 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 if you want a really aspirational bike you would usually have had to go to for example the r9t the triumph bonneville harley davidson sports there's if you if you like that kind of bike 
you know you don't really have any halfway point if you like the modern classics or the harleys the indians there's nothing halfway um that would fit your style if you like that modern classic style that's where the Royal Enfield Interceptor has come in because Royal Enfield have made a motorbike that is aspirational and cheap and 47 horsepower. It's a game-changing bike because when I look at these three bikes, the BMW, the Husqvarna and the Honda, they're, they're all good bikes. But if you want a modern classic, if that's your taste, a modern classic, you didn't used to have much choice around that 5K bracket. So I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say how much... I think the Royal Enfield Interceptor has changed the biking game. It's the the Mini or the Fiat 500 of the biking world. It's classless. It's made something aspirational in a cheap, small package. That is incredibly difficult to do. Right, let's wrap up with a bike you may be slightly surprised I'm about to talk about because I've I kind of a slightly... I almost don't know if I should say it. I've slightly got the bug for these almost ridiculously big bikes, whether it's the Harley-Davidson Pan America, the BMW GS, these bikes that I used to think, come on, that is basically a car. It's so big. I didn't get it. But now I've actually ridden one, I I get it. I understand why they're so popular, and it's made me look at some cheap alternatives. And I thought, yeah, let's have a look at the adventure bikes. Brilliant. But why not have a look at the... Is it the original? If not one of the original, the Honda Goldwing. The fully fared Honda Goldwing. Ideally, with a huge rear seat that actually looks like a sofa for the pillion. Massive panniers on either side. Huge back box. A lot of them have two aerials on either side of the rear seat. These are bikes that right now are £23,000 brand new. The Honda Goldwing, I think it's a 1900cc, £23,000, more than a huge amount of cars. And it's a bike that is almost so ridiculous, it's brilliant, and I see the beauty in them. And I thought, what can I get for Hondas, for a Honda Goldwing? So I started having a look online on auto trader and ebay and actually probably the best place if you're in the market for one of these is ebay over auto trader there's more choice they hold their value so so well if you're looking for a 2010 model you're still going to have to pay about twelve thousand pounds or something it's really incredible how they hold the value so i had to go older and i had to go to ebay and i found if if you've got a spare 5k or so and you want something that will just put a gigantic grin on your face just because of... I'm just looking at it. I think I would love to just ride around Europe on it. I think that would really be just so, so fun because it's so different and so out there and it looks so insanely, ridiculously brilliant. A Honda GL1500cc Goldwing Tourer motorbike. I'm looking at one now on eBay. It's baby blue. It's got a sofa a sofa as a back seat with a gigantic backrest and either side either side of the rear backrest there are two 
they're, they're what would you class them as? Almost like glove boxes, two storage bins that the pillion can easily get to and open up, have some food, just, I don't know, have a chocolate bar, have a sandwich in the right-hand side one, have a can of Coke in the left-hand side one. It's actually got an armrest that folds out so the pillion can get into the seat and then fold the armrest back in and make herself nice and cosy. So Monica, if she's on the back, for example, sitting there huge comfy backrest that looks like it's from a bmw 5 series massive armrests on either side she's got her her cubby holes for for her phone for food and stuff like that it's got a huge screen for well me as the rider i i think smiles per mile that would be very, very hard to beat. It's got the mileage you'd expect, 77,000 miles from a 1990 model. It's based up in the north of England. Is that, is it just me? Is that, I think they're off the scale cool. These old Hondas, I really do. Let me leave it there. Oh, there are so many. I just have to say one more. Another one. Honda Goldwing 1500cc relisted due to time wasters in the UK. £4,250 for one that's all white. It's got everything I mentioned with the previous one. But this, this is a private seller and this is a 1996 model. It's got 98,000 miles. It's 96, so it's a lot newer than the other one. And you can get this bike, no messing about at all, because he's actually put the price. It's not an auction. It's £4,250. Oh, that's tempting. You see, it's got a backrest for the rider and the pillion. Two backrests. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Thank you. Well, let me say thank you first off to XL Moto for sponsoring this week's episode. And thank you so much all of the listeners for listening to this week's episode i'll see you in the next one have a brilliant week 